All right, students, welcome back. We're going to talk about Homer's Odyssey books 8 and 9 today. But first, a quick review. Last time, we had quite the, mm, uh, mm, how to describe it, uh, uh, iffy, sort of uh, itchy, sort of mm, 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 sticky situation, is what we might say. And so Homer recalls um, this sticky situation, which goddess was cheating on her husband, who was a god. Aphrodite was cheating on Hephaestus. Aphrodite was cheating on Hephaestus. And with whom was she making a cookhold of Hephaestus? Yes? Ares, Hephaestus' brother. Ares, Hephaestus' brother. Also her brother, too, of course, just to mention that. And which god of the sun saw all this happening and went to tell Hephaestus because he didn't think that was right? Yes? Apollo, what name is used for Apollo, however, in this particular story? Yes? Helios, based on the old Titan of the Sun, who was son of the Titan of the Sky, Hyperion. In fact, uh, Apollo, during the Cattle of the Sun episode, will be referred to as Helios Hyperion. Because whereas two Titans were the Titans all-seeing of the Sun and the Sky, so now is Apollo God of the Sun, whereas his father, Zeus, is God of the Sky. And yet, Apollo does have some reigning over the sky because during the course of the day, what does the sun appear to do? Cross the arc of the sky. And so it was said that Apollo, with his two horses, Phaethon and Lampos, would cross the heavens every day with the sun. In fact, uh, there's a very sad story in Ovid's Metamorphoses of his son, Phaeton, uh, tempting to drive his chariot, which not even Zeus can do. He fails to do so, burns the Ethiopians, and then gets hit by a thunderbolt by Zeus. You try and bite off more than you can chew, sometimes you end up choking. And so, Apollo tells Ares, or excuse me, not Ares, tells Hephaestus that he's getting cheated on. Hephaestus comes up with a very brilliant stratagem for how to catch these two in flagrante delicto, his wife, Aphrodite, and Ares. What is the thing that he, as master craftsman and god, creates? Yes? An invisible web. An invisible web, like a very powerful spider's web that somehow Ares and Aphrodite do not feel closing in around them. It's almost as if this is a metaphor for there are things that you cannot see always constraining you in society, and if you go against them, perhaps they are laws, perhaps they are customs, Perhaps they are mores or relationships between people and ideas you do not see. And if you go against them, you might end up what? Caught and caught up in it. Very interesting. And so, Hephaestus catches the two, demands that all the gods come to see them. Only three show up, Hermes, Apollo, and Poseidon. Who gets down to business and even offers to pay the bride price back to Hephaestus if Ares, after he runs off, after he's freed, refuses to do so in a cowardly way, yes? Poseidon. Poseidon gets down to work. Who's spending time cracking jokes down there? Who makes a funny joke asking one of the other immature gods whether he would still lay with Aphrodite even if he knew we were going to get caught? Yes? Apollo. Apollo. And who knows the famous response of tricky, tricky, funny, funny Hermes? Yes? He said that he'd do the same with three times the, like, 
and all the goddesses watching. My goodness, Hermes, my goodness. In any case, good thing he wasn't the one doing the negotiations. Thank goodness for Poseidon. All right, so that song is done. After that song is finished by Demodocus, recall this is the second song of Demodocus. The first song was about how there was once conflict between Achilleus and Odysseus. We identified that as the changing ideal of this Achaean culture, going from a strength ideal, like Achilleus, Heracles, to an intelligence ideal, like Odysseus, the person who can see what needs to be done in order to be successful. In fact, we'll see this emphasized quite a bit in Book 9, when Odysseus will find himself confounded by a much stronger, more powerful, and in a much better position opponent. And so, Demodocus finishes his song, and Laodamus, his son, who had recently been in trouble with Odysseus a bit, and Halios, his friend, do a little dance. I don't know what sort of dance this must have been, but I imagine it is a very fancy sort of ballroom dance. In any case, regardless of the specific steps of it, Odysseus mentions that their powers are unmatched at dancing. These Phaeacians apparently have a lot of what's? A lot of parties. They love to feast. They love to dance. Those are the things that are done at parties even to this day. Uh, even, even, you know, what is a prom? What is a prom? You know? And so, Alcanoas then calls for gifts for Odysseus. Recall, these people are at the top, the tip top when it comes to giving hospitality. And in fact, Alcanoas says that under his rule, he's a bit of an emperor, there are 12 additional lords or kings over the Phaeacians. And that every single one of them, plus Alcanoas, making a baker's dozen, 13, will give a robe to Odysseus, a tunic to Odysseus, and a talent of gold. And recall that a talent of gold is no small amount. A talent is a unit of measure that means 50 to 70 pounds of gold. As much gold as you can carry, essentially speaking. It's like seven babies worth of gold. That's how you should think about it. Whoa. And so, also now, we see an end come to a conflicting situation. We see a good conclusion. Euryalus. Recall that he and Laodamus had attempted by means of insult to get Odysseus to engage in sport with them. They, being young men, thought that talking a little bit of smack, saying that Odysseus doesn't look like a man versed in sports at all, might incentivize him to play with them. But Odysseus was, a, he was in sort of a bad mood, just wants to go home, beat them at the sports, and said he was just trying to be humble. Well, apparently, Euryalus understands that he made an error there, according to hospitality in Vizinia, that he should have treated this guest a little bit differently, perhaps as his elder rather than as his peer. And so he offers a sword to Odysseus as apology, which I think is very big of him, especially because Odysseus essentially said that even though he's very uh, beautiful as a young man, that he's also very what? That he's brainless, that he's dumb. And I think this is interesting because actually one of the great symbols for your mind, your intellect, the logos, is the what? The sword. Because you use the sword cut things into smaller parts in the way, same way that you use your mind to analyze things, which means to cut them into smaller parts. You might say, I can't do that, Mr. Schmidt. I would say, think of a square. Now think of what a square is made of, four lines. Now if I tell you that one of those lines is two inches long, what can you now tell me about the entire square? Who can tell me the area of the square? Yes? It's four. How could you do that? 
because you're capable of analyzing. You can break things down in your mind in order to see more about them. You're the only creature that's ever existed that can do that, by the way. And you think that's boring, which is funny. Which is funny. So Euryalus offers a sword as an apology, which is perhaps a metaphor for showing that he's not quite as brainless as we thought at first. Again, nothing is as it seems, yes? And so Odysseus forgives him. And then Alcanoas offers him a golden cup, a golden thing in which you gather things. And uh, Arate brings Odysseus a chest and tells him to secure it with a knot or a lock so that while he sleeps during his journey, none break it. This is a bit of foreshadowing. I want you to keep this in mind. She's giving him something so precious that it better be locked so that someone not take it. We're going to return to the past in a few minutes here. Uh, and actually, it's probably going to be uh, in two lectures that we talk about this. But it will end up having been the case that Odysseus did not secure something very valuable earlier on. And it really, really, really cost him. In fact, I'll tell you just as a preview. He was within sight of Ithaca, could see the fires from their cooking, could probably smell what they were cooking. And yet he did not make it back to Ithaca. Something happens because of him and because of his crew that pushes him way far away again and will lead to many, many people dying. So there we go. Best to secure our valuables. Odysseus then ties a knot that Circe taught him, which I think is very interesting. We don't really know much about Circe yet. We will over the next couple lectures. All right. This is always a very telling and interesting moment. Obviously, Odysseus has revealed himself to these Phaeacians to some extent. They still don't know who he is, but they do know that he wants to leave. But in sort of a touching moment, there is one person who doesn't want him to leave so much. One person that once saw him naked and barbaric, savage-looking, covered with nothing but a leaf and some dirt, who then saw what he could become when he showered, and then also showered with grace by Athena, becoming taller, thicker, and having curlier hair. And this is Nausicaa. Nausicaa seems to have set her heart on this Odysseus a little bit. A little bit sad, because we always knew that he was definitely never going to stay where? Here on which island? Scaria. Scaria. Very good. And so she says, Will you remember me, sir? I'm glad you have your book right here. Well, Odysseus responds that he will, re he will pray to her like a god. And if I open this book here, right to those lines, 463 to 467, in book eight, I see, ah, yes. An another bath. I'll start at 454. When the maids had bathed him and anointed him with oil, they didn't have soap at this time, by the way. They used olive oil. It's, uh, you use olive oil for everything. They put a lovely mantle and a tunic about him, a shirt and sort of a cloak. And he stepped from the bath and went to join the men at their wine drinking. Then Nausicaa, with the god's loveliness on her, stood beside the pillar that supported the roof with its joinery and gazed upon Odysseus with all her eyes and admired him. You might imagine she's sort of like, <sighs> and spoke to him aloud and addressed him in winged words, saying, Goodbye, stranger, and think of me sometimes 
When you are back at home, how I first, or how I was the first you owed your life to. I'll respond, and then I'll give that question. Then resourceful Odysseus spoke in turn and answered her, Nausicaa, daughter of great-hearted Alcanoas, even so may Zeus, high-thundering husband of Hera, grant me to reach my house and see my day of homecoming. So even when I am there, I will pray to you. As to a goddess, all the days of my life, for maiden, my life was your gift. Does Odysseus know not only how to make a good introduction, but also how to make a good exit and conclusion? It's almost as if, and this is the truth, every part of one's interaction is governed by the zinnia. The introduction, the giving of gifts, and the end. And so one must always play the game right if one wants to be successful. Very good. What was the question? Is olive oil worthless stuff, or is it not used? I don't know. Well, I'll have to look it up. I'll ask a Greek friend of mine, see what they use it for. The, the thing said about olive oil, even to this day, is use it for everything. You can use it for everything. Olives. Very, very useful. And also, it tells you something about the human mind. Can we come up for uses, and many uses, of the things around us? Yes. That's why some business people suggest, suggest that there's no such thing as scarce resources. Obviously, we run out of things, but then what do we do? We make new things. That's right. That's right. So we run out of, you know, uh, so New York in the 19th century had a, they had a lot of horses. So you might not understand one of the problems that comes with that. A lot of horses means a lot of what? So they actually had a major problem with how to deal with all the poop in their streets. How was that solved? By getting rid of the poop of the horses? No. It was solved by us inventing the what? The car, the automobile. Right. Immediately problem gone even though it's not a direct solution. Very good, and that sort of thing often happens. In fact, if you ever read any science fiction, we seem to have not gotten the progress of civilization right. Usually it has us all on space stations with flying cars. What did we invent instead, which is even more impressive? The internet. The internet, yes, exactly, right. Right, 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 all right. So Nausicaa asks Odysseus to remember her. Odysseus responds that he will pray to her like a god, and then Odysseus offers the tenderest piece of meat to Demodocus. It's probably the tenderloin. That's uh, literally what it's called. And he says, above all mortals, I prize you. Which is interesting. Because what is Demodocus's job? He's a what? He's a singer. And what do singers at this time do? They don't just sing. They tell what's. So he's a storyteller. And so to Odysseus, who is the main character of Homer, who is himself a blind poet, what does Homer have his main character, Odysseus, tell to the stand-in for Homer in the poem that he is the most what? That among all mortals, there is no mortal more to be prized than a storyteller. Because what is it that the storyteller gathers and then disseminates to those around him or her? Information, right? Information. Very good. Very good. And so Odysseus asked Demodocus to sing of the Paeus and the Wooden Horse. So we've gone over this Wooden Horse scenario twice. So I'm going to go super fast through this. So uh, right fast, y'all. Here it goes. Demodocus sings of the Trojan Horse. There's a Trojan Horse, a big wooden horse. It's in front of Troy. We know the situation. We know the story. The Trojans had three ideas about it. Cut it open. That's a smart idea. Find some Achaeans in there. Do some terrible things to them. Have a good day. Push it off a cliff. Another great idea. Do that. Drown those Achaeans. Have a good day. 
choice keeps falling. Number three, leave it to blandish the gods. That was a bad idea, but it seemed like a good idea after Laocoon, the priest of Neptune, who threw a spear at the, at the horse. This is a later addition by Virgil, of course. Um, after he's killed by two snakes, seemingly sent by Minerva Athena, because they go to hide under her temple afterwards, um, well, the Trojans seem to think, if we mess with this horse, we will die. But the actual truth is, if you don't mess with the horse and you take it into your home, you will die. And so that was a poor... There are several times we see the Trojans being tricked by Athena. We see Pandaros tricked by Athena. We see Hector tricked by Athena. We see the entire Trojan people tricked by Athena. It's almost as if wisdom only helps you under specific circumstances. Or if you do not have the correct grasp of wisdom, it works against you. Something interesting there. And so... Again, we find Odysseus weeping during the tale. Ah, yes. Oh, and we hear about a very ugly situation here, too. Odysseus, alongside Menelaus, apparently went to collect Helen from Deiphobos' house. There, he endured the grimmest fighting. And in fact, we'll hear in the Aeneid that Deiphobos had to pay quite the price. Quite the price uh, for being married third to Helen. All right, let's keep moving. Alcanoas sees that Odysseus is crying during this story. Now, he's no slouch. He's pretty smart. He's seen Odysseus cry during this Achilles Odysseus story. He's seen Odysseus cry during this Trojan versus Achaean wooden Trojan horse story. He's starting to put some things together. And so he asks very famously about Odysseus and who he is. He says something along the lines of, no man is born from the rocks or the trees, and no man is altogether nameless. And so he says, who are you? And then he shares a prophecy indicating that perhaps he does know who this person is. A very interesting prophecy. A prophecy that might make you question the ethics of Alcanoas and whose interests he has first at heart, his own people's or his guests. Which god is he going to follow most? His own people's progenitor, Poseidon, who does not like Odysseus, or Zeus, who guards the Zinnia. That would be a very difficult situation. Of course, both gods could destroy you. And so he shares this prophecy from his father, Nausithoos. One day, Poseidon will cover with a very strange uh, verb. Do you know? Do you want to know what the verb is in Greek? It comes from. It is kaluptein, cover. It's the same word from which we get which goddess's name. Calypso. And so. It's as if these places, once found, will be hidden again, except for if someone else goes on this sort of journey. In any case, Poseidon will cover the Phaeacian city with a mountain for them offering safe conveyance home to a person, and he will stun the ship on its return. So a ship will take a man to a place, a mountain will then cover the Phaeacian island. There's some debate about whether that means land on top of it and destroy it, like Dorothy's house on the Wicked Witch of the East, or just like a dome, now cover the Phaeacian island so that none can ever return there. Bit unclear. Stunning the ship also sounds somewhat unclear. Does it just turn to stone? Does it turn to stone and that it gets rooted to the bottom of the ocean and that it gets 
thrown to the bottom of the ocean, do these Phaeacians lose their ability either A, to live, or to B, offer safe conveyance for the rest of time after Odysseus, if he happens to be the person of prophecy here? Could this be him? And here's a hint. It's definitely him. All right, moving forward. Book nine. We've heard three tales from Demodocus now. We've heard about Achilles and Odysseus being in a fight. We've heard about Ares and Aphrodite and Hephaestus getting into a bit of a love triangle. We've heard about Odysseus and his cunning stratagem to come up with a wooden horse to produce the wooden horse. Technically, it was Epeos who, who was the carpenter, like uh, Joseph. And um, now we've heard, and so now it's time for Odysseus to tell us a little bit about who he is. He is Odysseus, son of Laertes, father of Telemachus. And so he reveals himself as king of Ithaca, and he says he has been detained for many years, eight years total, by Circe and Calypso. We'll learn about Circe in the next lecture, or so probably the next two or three lectures. She was a sea witch who kept um, Odysseus on a, an island named for a scream, Aiaia, for a year. Calypso kept him for eight or seven years, so eight of his ten years on the sea, he spent with Calypso and Circe quite a bit of time. And so here's where we start off today. All right. I am Odysseus, son of Laertes, king over Ithaca, same Neratos and Zakynthos. There are actually more smaller islands in the catalog of book, in book two, in the catalog of ships, excuse me, in book two of the Iliad, but here we only get the four. We get Ithaca, same Neratos and Zakynthos. He said that two divinities have kept him hostage, and those are Calypso, most recently, I've seen that, and Circe, who is also a goddess, but is often described as a sea witch or enchantress. In fact, there's a contemporary author who is recently, who is a classicist, um, who has recently written a book called Circe, from her perspective, if you ever wanted to pick that up. I forget exactly her name. She is the author who also wrote Song of Achilles. So there's also a book about the Iliad from a different perspective, too, if you're interested in that sort of thing. I've never read them. Um, all right. So Odysseus recounts his journey <clears throat> from Ilion or Troy. First, the very first place he goes after he sacks Troy is a place called Ismaros. It's very close to Troy. There are people there called the Kikonians or the Kikones. Apparently, right after war and sacking the city, <clears throat> Odysseus had a bit of a bloodlust. He didn't get enough stuff from the Trojans. He wants to go sack their allies and get more stuff. And something to understand about these ancient Achaean sort of pillagers is that what they considered good sport was pillaging other cities. In fact, if you were to ask, Mr. Schmid, it sort of seems like these suitors are eating infinite amounts of cattle and pigs from Odysseus. So it's like they're eating meat every day. How does he have so much cattle? I'd say, A, the idea seems to be that at one time he had endless cattle, and at this time he has very much limited cattle. But how did he get that cattle in the first place? If he lives on a small little island, well, he must have done what for it? He must have pillaged and been a pirate for it. And that was not considered a bad thing for the Achaeans. It was considered a manly and masculine thing to do. If you could go take something from somebody else, Whose fault was it that the things got taken? Theirs for being weak. That's right. That was the idea. That was the idea. And in any case, he was seeking more plunder. And he sacks the city of the Kikones, this Ismaros. Now, here is the beginning of a major theme throughout his story. 
And I want you to think about it in one of two ways. I'll give you two ways to interpret this. Either A, so here's the actual thing. Odysseus's men often wish to do other than he wishes, even though he is their leader. Generally, his thoughts are wiser thoughts than theirs. So when they want to do something that diverges from what Odysseus wants to do, often there are very negative consequences. Often it either causes them time or it causes them lives. Two ways to look at this. Either Odysseus is obviously smarter than they are and they should have listened to him and it is in fact their own recklessness that gets them killed. Slightly more subtle way to look at this, but not necessarily true. Who's telling the story right now? And so who might he favor in the account and make to look so smart? Himself. himself. And yet, and yet, he is the sole survivor of this journey. So perhaps he is actually the smartest. But I just want to lay that out there for you. He's telling the story. He chooses the details. And so here we go, here we go. And you might say that's why the winners tell the stories. Because where are the losers? Dead. Right. Exactly. And so do you care about their perspective? Sometimes, for historical reasons, of course, of course. In any case, he seeks more plunder. Now, this is what's happened. He and his men have sacked the city successfully. Great day, awesome. They're drinking, they're eating, they're leading off the wives of these men, having a good time with it. He wants to leave, Odysseus has a feeling. He's like, mm, we already sacked this city, we should go, we should go. He just has a bad feeling about things. But his men, well, they get drunk, and they foolishly do not listen, and they stay the night. And what happens? Well, of course, what you would expect to happen. Their allies, their more warlike companions, come to aid them. And it ends up being the case that six men out of every one of Odysseus's ships, 72 total men, get killed because of this. Get killed just because of their own foolish what? decisions. All right, we have more on Monday.